11 verses to the Philippians, a beginning of a letter of encouragement. It was a letter to strengthen their faith, to encourage them, but most of all, I think, clearly, this letter was a letter to remind them to find their joy in the Lord. 16 times we are told in the book of Philippians to find our joy in the Lord. And in Philippians chapter 4, verse 4, we are commanded, continue finding your joy in the Lord. And again, I tell you, continue finding your joy in the Lord. So at the beginning of the letter, he calls himself a servant. He calls himself and Timothy servants and the people saints. Just speaking of the humility and the unity of the church. Then he goes right into an introductory Um, time of greeting by saying, listen, church, I'm thankful for you, I'm prayerful, and I'm joyful. What a great relationship between a pastor and its church and the church and the pastor to be thankful, prayerful, and joyful for one another. But where did Paul find his joy? We saw this morning in two areas. Paul's joy with the Philippians was because of their partnership in the gospel. When he came into Philippi preaching the gospel, they received it by faith. They believed the message that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, was buried and rose from the dead. And they were partners in the gospel for having accepted the same message that Paul did, the message that brings eternal life. But not only did they accept the message, they also were partners in proclaiming it. And is that a great joy, to be partners proclaiming and telling the good news to others? And so Paul said, when I think about you, church, when I think about you while I'm sitting in prison— My heart is rejoicing because you love the gospel as I do, and you're busy telling and proclaiming the gospel just as I am busy telling and proclaiming the gospel. Wow, what a great heart this church has. And then Paul said the second reason he could be so joyful while he's in prison, his confidence is in the Lord. It wasn't in the Philippians, it was in the Lord. He knew that what the Lord started in the moment they were born again He would continue until the rapture. He would continue until the day that they're glorified. And so for you and I, sure, we may take a step back. We may wander sometimes. We may fail. We will fail. We know that God is sovereign, and he is going to bring us into completion. He is going to glorify all of those who are his. Romans chapter 8 says, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be made into the image of Christ. Those he predestined, he called to salvation. Those he called are justified. And those he justified are glorified. The same group of people that are justified will be the exact same people that are glorified. And if you're a believer in Jesus, be hopeful. This life will soon end and we'll be with our Father and the Son in the eternal home. What a a great joy that is. But can I tell you the next text here, verses 12 through 18? Paul's going to give us a real practical experience in finding joy in life. Have you had a bad day recently? Or maybe a bad week? Maybe a time when you think your life is totally falling apart. I feel like I've been living there. It is not easy, is it? To be in life's trenches, to be so overwhelmed with life's problems, you almost wonder, could I ever be joyful again? Could I ever smile again? Could I ever be happy? The answer is yes. And we're going to find an answer to it right here in this very text. So look with me as we look. And basically, I have two points. Number one, we're going to look at the circumstances of Paul. That's my first point, the circumstances of Paul. And then secondly, the joy that Paul had in the midst of those circumstances. 
All right, because do you think you've had a bad day or a bad year or a bad couple of years? Let's take a look at what the scriptures say. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verse 12. But I want you to know, brethren. All right, Paul is serious about this. He wants the Philippian church to know something. And so we better pay attention as well. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me. Oh, don't you like that? The things which happened to me. And isn't that true of life? You're going along and everything seems to be going fine. And then all of a sudden, life happens. It's Tuesday afternoon, it's a Thursday morning, and life happens. And it's full of, as I said this morning, trial, tribulation, and trouble on every hand. And you think everything is going fine, and the next thing you know, it's like the rug has been pulled out on you, and you, are, you feel like you're falling. And you, if you feel like you can never get up again. Paul says, I want you to know something, Philippian believers, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord... Okay, so we've got some circumstances we're going to talk about that have happened to Paul, much like life happens to us, but now most of the brethren are going to learn from Paul's experience and go on for better ministry. But look at the word most. What does that imply? Not all, which means there's a group that aren't going to benefit from Paul's trials. Look what happens. Most of the brethren, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed, here are the some, here are the, the not all, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Well, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Okay. Do, do you see where we're looking at? We're looking at two things. Paul's circumstance and then how he could find absolutely unbelievable joy in the midst of that. Here's what we know that Paul was going through as he talks about the things which have happened to him. We know that on his third missionary journey, at the end, he was collecting money to bring to the Jerusalem saints. While he's in Jerusalem giving money to the saints, not having committed any offenses, not having done anything wrong, there's a mob revolt that nearly kills him, and he's taken in, under arrest. Paul then is brought from Jerusalem down to Caesarea on the coast, to Herod's palace on the coast, Caesarea, and for two years, for two years, he's in chains. He's under arrest for two whole years. There has been a death threat on him that his nephew uncovered, and Paul was able to escape that plot. And now there is a second attempt to kill Paul while he's in prison in Caesarea. So Paul appeals to Caesar and says, I appeal to, I appeal to Caesar. And next thing you know, he's on his way to Rome to go before Nero. And on the way, on, remember that ship that he took to get to Rome? He told the people... Do not go at this time of year. It's way too dangerous to take the ship out at this time of year. They went anyways, and there was such a tempest 
that they went many days without any food. They, the Bible says they went many days without seeing the sun or the moon, their, their boat being tossed in the Mediterranean Sea. And finally, after 14 days, the boat hit, uh, hit the, the rocks before the shore and broke into pieces, and they landed on an island. And then he makes his way to Rome. And now he's been in Rome two more years under arrest chained to a guard, or sitting in a cell, depending on where he was. For how many years? For four years. The food? Probably bad. The temperature? Probably cold. He probably doesn't... He's, it's, not, it's not a prison camp where he gets TV and good meals and health care and an exercise room or whatever. You're talking... For four years, the Apostle Paul is enduring prison. He says in 2 Corinthians, if you want to go there, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to Paul's circumstances. Verse 23, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, are they ministers of Christ, the false teachers? I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. Does that sound like a vacation? Does that sound like a good day? He goes on and he says in verse 24, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. He, he, wasn't, just, he wasn't just beaten 39 times. It was 39 times five. And every single lash would have made a mark on his body. I don't think that they were being gentle. It says, three times I was beaten with rods. The Romans, the Jewish people used the lash. The Romans used the rod. Three times he was beaten with rods, and that would break bones every single time. I've never broken a bone in my body. Can you imagine how many bones the Apostle Paul must have broken? He says, once I was stoned. There was a time at Lystra when the people were so angry at me for preaching the gospel that they brought me and, and they, they cast huge stones that crushed my body and my skull and every part of me until they thought I was for sure dead and he might have even died there. And they dragged his body out of the city. How is that for a pleasant day? I mean, you think we've got problems. Paul says, three times I was shipwrecked. We know one time that he was shipwrecked, but three times he was in a shipwreck. A night and a day I have been in the deep. For some 18 to 24 hours, the Apostle Paul is floating in the water, hanging onto a, a piece of something with, with his feet down where the sharks could eat him. And he doesn't have a life jacket on. And he's not holding on to an airline cushion that'll keep him afloat. The waves coming over him, thirsty, hungry, jellyfish, sharks. I mean, who knows what's, what's around him? Verse 26, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, 
the Jewish people, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in this. That's a lot of perils. That's a lot of danger. Like everywhere he went, he was under the, the threat of death all the time by the Jewish people, by the Gentiles, by the robbers, by the countrymen, by the people in the city. When Paul says to the Philippians, these, I want you to know, brethren, these are the things that have happened to me. This is real life. This, this is life for the Apostle Paul. And your life, you may feel like you are going through one trial, one tribulation, one problem, and you are. And I, and I know it's, it's real. This is real life. But Paul still says we need to find our joy in Christ. He goes on, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst. I mean, hunger and thirst. I don't think he means, oh, I missed a meal, or I didn't get to supersize my, my meal when I went through the drive through I think he's meaning he went a long time without food and he was hungry and thirsty in fastings often, the worst, in cold. <laughs> That'll do it. The other day I was having a math lesson and I was pretty excited about the quadratic formula and I told my class, hey, you're going to love this lesson. There can probably be nothing better than this. And somebody said, well, what about waterboarding? And I was like, oh boy, they're thinking this is torture. I'm thinking it's fun. For Paul, cold, there were days when he was bitter cold. You know how it is when you're cold and you just, you don't feel comfortable? He goes on, and nakedness, besides the other things, what, com- what comes upon me daily? My deep concern for all the churches. His anxiety over the health and the state of the churches. He was, he was fearful and anxious. These are his circumstances. He's not writing to the Philippians from a comfy chair saying, Wow, ministry is great. Yeah, I got a little few problems here and there, but I find I'm happy in the Lord. No, he has suffered greatly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, there's been an effective and an open door for ministry with many adversaries. Strange, isn't it? He has an open and effective door for giving the gospel And with it comes a multitude of enemies. It's almost strange, but that's the way the Lord is. The Lord says, you want to be great in heaven? What must must you do? Be servant of all. You want to be first? What must you do? Be last, right? You have to be last. You want to save your life? What do you have to do? Lose it. You want to proclaim the gospel? Prepare to suffer. It goes with it. Enemies, opposition. The devil hates it when we give the gospel here. When we go out and give the gospel this week and we point people to Christ and the cross, do you know what the devil and his demons are thinking about this area? They're thinking, we've got to to go harder and harder to stop them in Hermantown. They're going to do something that's going to bring the gospel of grace to a lost and needy world. We've got to dampen this thing. This is real warfare. This is real. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. Paul says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me. Does that kind of give you a better idea what things he's talking about? 
the things which happened to me, but look at his joy, have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The idea of furtherance of the gospel, it's like a heavily wooded forest that nobody has ever gone into. And the idea of furtherance in the gospel means he's bringing the gospel to people and to places that he never would have if he hadn't gone through those trials. Listen, he's chained to a Roman guard that would change shifts maybe every six or eight hours for four years. That's a lot of Roman guards that are going to hear the gospel from him. And he is thrilled that the gospel is going to be out like this. Sure, he can't preach to the large groups and he can't visit the churches and he doesn't have the freedom to go here and there, but he is able to give the gospel. You know what he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2? He says, I am, being, I am in chains as an evildoer. People think I'm, I've done something wrong and I'm now in prison for it. And he says, I am bound in chains as an evildoer, but then here's the joy. But the word of God is not bound. You can bind Paul. You can stop feeding him. You can stop giving him clothes. You can stop his freedom. But you cannot stop the word of God. And for that, Paul rejoices. True? So the darkest days, the most awful circumstances, whatever they may be, whatever you're going through that is a heavy weight on your soul, the one thing is, The gospel is not chained, and it can be brought even further to people that we would have no other contact with otherwise. So Paul goes on to say this in verse 13. The good news, the joy in the midst of all of these circumstances is that they turned out for the furtherance of the gospel so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Somebody goes to prison, and you wonder, what did they do, right? You wonder. They must have done something bad. Everybody may say they're innocent in jail, but they're certainly not all innocent. Maybe there are some that are innocent. But Paul says, Paul says, it's not just my circumstances that are against me. Look at verse 16. The former, the sum of those who are hurting Paul in prison. These are fellow pastors and preachers and teachers that know Paul. They might have ministered with him. They might have been discipled by him, but they know Paul and Paul knows them. They're they're friends in the ministry circles, right? He says, some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. Verse 15. Verse 16, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my chains. They're preaching the gospel, but they're preaching it in such a way as to make Paul look like he's got bad character. You can't trust. Paul's been in prison four years. Four years? He must have done something wrong. He must have done something pretty bad. You better not ever have anything to do with Paul. That Four years he shouldn't be in there if he's innocent. Can you hear what they're doing? Don't follow Paul. Don't don't give him money. Don't listen. You know what kind of character you have to have to be in prison for four years? Oh, and by the way, his motives, something's got him up. He must be getting, you know, 
They're, they're assassinating his character. They're defaming his motives. And they're propagating it around the churches. And Paul can't do anything about it. He can't defend himself. He can't go to the churches and say, but wait a minute, that's not really how it happened. You know, I'm innocent, really. For four years, I've been in prison. But I'm... he can't even defend himself. They're preaching out of selfish ambition and in the process, deliberately hurting Paul. And he, there's nothing he can do about it. I don't know. I, I wouldn't be very happy. I'd be like, this is what I'm called for? I mean, the Lord, he wants to get his message out. Make it easier for us, and it'll go out. God says no. Because every time another Roman guard was put on the arm of Paul, I think Paul just lit up with a big smile saying, the next six hours, you're mine. I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. You need to know him. One after another, and Paul says, for that I can rejoice. Even when I'm being, my character's being assassinated, even with all the trials and the death threats. Life is hard, but God is good. God is good. Any day that God has not died, any day that God has not lied, is a good day, a great day, no matter what we're going through. True? There's a God on the throne. He's in charge. He's permitting it. Think about Job. We covered Job last spring. The devil talks to the Lord and says, sure, Job's going to be your friend and be good because you reward him with everything. Take it all away. Take away his health and he'll curse you. One trial after another, within a minute, he loses everything. And what's Job's response? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And with all of that, Job did not sin with his lips. The Lord gives us things. He takes them away. But he's still God. Look with me at verse 14. Most of the brethren... Here's another aspect of joy. Most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains. So do you see the two reactions? One group with selfish ambition, seeing Paul in chains, assassinates his character and his motives, thinking they can get away with it. The other group, most of them, the majority of them, Paul suffering in prison, and it makes them confident in the Lord. If Paul can go through that, then I'm going to continue preaching, and if I get arrested, by God's grace, I'll be able to endure as well. And they have confidence. So when you're going through your trials that are overwhelming, one billow washing over you after another, your faithfulness and your confidence in the Lord is contagious. It really is. It's contagious. If I brought somebody here from a country where the believers are heavily persecuted and somebody has escaped a camp maybe in North Korea for being a Christian and somehow they made their way here and they stood up and said here's what I endured for the cause of Christ for the name of Christ 
I think we would be emboldened tomorrow to not really worry about offending somebody with the name of Jesus because we don't want them to think that we're, we really, really love Jesus all that much. Do, you know, why, why don't we talk about Jesus boldly with the community? Without him, they're going to perish. But, but seeing somebody stand up for the faith and be willing to endure such persecution would only strengthen us, I think. It really would. We would go out and say, wow, I'll, I won't even have to suffer that much just by sharing the gospel with people I meet tomorrow. That was the effect of Paul's imprisonment. And Paul could say, I rejoice in my four years in prison and all that I've gone through because other believers are watching me and they're becoming stronger and more confident to proclaim the message. And that's what Paul cared about, the preaching of the gospel. That's where his heart was. And then he says that the those who preach out of goodwill, verse 17, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, in every way, whether my fellow pastors and my fellow ministers speak evil about me and try to destroy me while I'm in prison, that's pretense, or they're preaching in truth and love. Paul says, doesn't, doesn't affect me because he says, Christ is being preached. And in this, I rejoice. That's what we rejoice in. We don't rejoice in, oh, I, I want the beatings and the shipwrecks. Boy, I really hope I get shipwrecked in the middle of the week. It's going to encourage me quite a bit. No, that's not where we find the joy. But we find joy in the midst of it because the gospel's being furthered, other believers are being strengthened, and Christ is being preached. And that is what we rejoice in, right? It's a matter of what you keep your eyes focused on. Like, lately, I, lately, I feel like I have this sense of inexpressible joy. I mean, I'm loving I'm loving my time with the Savior, my walk with the Savior. But then something takes my gaze off of the cross for just a minute. And all of a sudden, I feel like I just plunged down to the depths of a valley. And I feel like I'm in a, in a dense fog. I looked it up this afternoon. A dense fog that covers a seven-city block area, 100 feet deep of fog, is composed of less than one glass of water divided into 60,000 million drops. Not much there, but it can cripple a whole city. And if we take our gaze off of Christ and the cross and look at our circumstance and those who hate us or those who speak evil about us or some circumstance that we're in, it can just cripple us. And it devastates it's because our gaze has shifted. True? And our gaze shifts, we lose balance out of everything. My last text is in Hebrews 12. Go with me to Hebrews 12. I had a really great one in 2 Corinthians 7. Well, let's go there first. Sorry, I'm going to throw this in. You, you, 2 Corinthians 7. 
2 Corinthians 7. Then we'll go to quickly to Hebrews 12 and look at 2 Corinthians 7. Now, you know Paul and the Corinthians had a kind of a hard relationship with each other. Paul had, had made some promises. He said, Corinthians, uh, I'm going to come over and see you. I'm in Ephesus right now. I'm going to take a boat and come right over to see you. And he didn't. So right away they said, liar, liar, pants on fire. You said you were coming and you didn't. Then Paul said, well, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come over and do this, and I'm going to come back through you as well. And it didn't happen. He ended up going a different route. And they said, Paul, what you, you can't get something straight here or what? We don't trust you. Plus the false teachers came in and maligned Paul's character, and now Paul's trying to say, but I'm truly an apostle, and, and you are the evidence of it. You're my children. Boy, if you don't see that, then, you know, you need to be able to see that thing. And so he has been pained over this relationship. Of, and so finally he sends a letter by way of Titus. He sends a letter to the Corinthians, and it is a hard letter. It's not a, please, please, come, come back to me. It was a hard letter. You're sinning. You're away from God. Get right. Repent. Now he, okay. Have you ever sent a text or an email when you think, ooh, I wish I could take that text back. I, I did the send button. You know, I haven't ever done one that bad. I haven't done that. But I've, I've heard of people who have written an email and sent it and then thought, oh, I should never have sent it. But Paul sends a letter, and it, we don't have it. It's, we don't have it recorded in the canon of Scripture. But it goes to the, and now Paul's thinking, oh, great, how did they receive it? Do they love me? Do they hate me? Do they want to see me? Do they not want to see me? Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 3. I do not say this to condemn because, okay, verse 2. Open your hearts to us, Paul says. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. The false teachers are saying Paul wronged them and cheated them and corrupted them. And Paul says, no, I haven't. My ministry has been a ministry of integrity. Verse 3. I do not say this to condemn, for I have said before that you are in our hearts. Sounds like what he said to the Philippians this morning. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together, Paul says. Great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in what? All our tribulation. What? He's exceedingly joyful in all of the tribulation? Look at what he says. Verse 5. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. Does that sound like fun? No. Sounds pretty trial, pretty uh, tribulous. But we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts. What did he have inside his heart? Fears. All right. And in the midst of all this, he maintains joy in the Lord. Isn't that great? If Paul can do it, we can do it. With the same Holy Spirit. Outside our conflicts, inside our fears in our heart, yet we can still be filled with joy. And then he goes on. We don't have time to get into all of it, but verse 13 same chapter, therefore we have been comforted in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed. Just rejoicing exceedingly in the midst of severe, severe trials. Boy, that's the attitude we need to have, right? Hey, can you imagine what your neighbors would say if knowing you are going through a tremendous trial? They would say, wow, do they carry themselves with such a different grace? They have such joy in their heart. And they, uh, they go to this church, and it seems like they come back rejoicing. Even though the trial hasn't changed, there's a different attitude. Do you know how attractive that is? Your neighbors would say, wow, I'd like to be able to hand handle that. 
You know, I have seen people at bedsides where things are very difficult, and as believers, they still have great joy. I've seen believers on their deathbed with great, 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 exceeding joy. What a testimony of God's grace. And, and they're fixing their eyes on Jesus. All right, my final text, Hebrews 12, quickly, very quickly, as we lead right into the Lord's Supper here with Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12. We're running a race, we're to run it with endurance, and it is not easy. Sin besets us, we get weighed down, we fall behind, the race is not easy. Verse 2 of Hebrews 12, what are we to be doing? Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That's where we fix our gaze. You will find joy in Christ when your eyes are fixed on Christ alone and on his cross, right? You, that, that, is where you're, that is your source of joy. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Do you see that? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He, he wasn't saying, oh, those nails, boy, do they feel cool. They're great. Oh, yeah. No, it's excruciating. And when sin was heaped upon him as the earth was shrouded in darkness, it was torturous. But there was a joy even there for what was yet to happen in the future. He had confidence in the Father. He had confidence in the Father, and he knew he would have all of these spiritual children living with him someday. So even the Lord sets the example for us perfectly of joy in the midst of suffering, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You know what it means to despise? To think little of it. To think little of the shame. I think of it this way. Whatever happens to the messenger, that's all, there's nothing we can do about it, but don't ever let something happen to the message. Don't tamper with the message, but if the world hates the messenger, if whatever, that's just part of the, that's just part of the, the run. Despising the shame has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, which brings us to our first song, Right? The Lamb of God, seated on the throne, crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. He, he has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Wow. So, I'm going to tell you what the, what the scriptures command you. The scriptures command you, it's an imperative, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Literally, continue finding your joy in the Lord and again, I'm going to tell you, continue keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus. Find your joy right there. All right. Father, thank you for this text. Wow, what a great challenge for us. We see the circumstances, the things that had happened to Paul, and we see tremendous, exceeding joy in the midst of it. What an example that, not, that we have, but also, Father, the Lord's perfect example of the joy set before him as he endured the cross, despising the shame. He looked to you, and he found joy. We, Father, this week, as we point people to Christ, whatever trials, tribulations, whatever things go on, we want to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. We want to see the furthering of the gospel, and in that we rejoice that Christ is being preached. So help us to rejoice in the gospel, the furthering of it, and may Christ be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.